apropos of nothing, I have to send you this pic on Slack. Is that, is that Peter Velez? He's in Hawaii with all these girls in swimsuits. Yeah. <laughs> he was a player. I had some sessions that I want to tell you a little bit about that, that I thought would be funny. Maybe this is just me, but um, in band class, did you ever play those pieces? We did them all the time where they're, they're by composers who no one's ever heard of. They're usually mm-hmm. band directors themselves. Um, <laughs> and they're classic band pieces, right? They have classic band sounds and they're almost written as etudes for band. Like they mm-hmm. all have like things for you to learn. Like this is a piece that's going to help you follow uh, a da capo. Or it's like this is a piece that's right, going to help right. you um, learn what a stinger is or like learn about march form, right? And for, yeah. for flutes, it's about F major runs and stuff like that. So it's all like very band directory. We would listen to professional recordings of these pieces, right? In band class. And I always wondered, where are they getting oh, no. this? Because these, oh, no. these uh, <laughs> this piece can't possibly have been played more than three times. Yeah. So, so where are they getting this like amazing professional recording out of it? Uh, and I've always wondered that, and now I know. It's people like us. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened? You played in a recording session for one of these Hall Leonard? Yeah, um, yeah. You know, it was Carl Fisher. There were a few like that. And we just sort of sat down and, and read through a ton of band music. Yeah, so I don't know if you ever wondered, where do you get professional recordings of random band pieces? It's, it's freelance musicians, I guess, who just have nothing better to do. <laughs> It's that, and also I, um, there's a bunch of, I want to say the North Texas Wind Symphony. So the University of North Texas, and I believe that's Denton, I think the city's called, mm. the town's called, in Denton, Texas, which is kind of a suburb just north of Dallas. Okay. And I mean, that university has a phenomenal music program, I think at least. <laughs> um, yeah, their Wind Symphony, I just remember a lot of those recordings are with the North Texas Wind Symphony, a lot of the quote standard recordings. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I do imagine that Texas, te- Texas is a pretty big hub of band recordings and just band yeah. activity all band related things so yeah that's why i stay away yeah yeah <laughs> spent a year down there teaching band so that's right not, not teaching band but teaching teaching within a band system and that was horrible um, you were in san or, antonio uh, right yeah in san antonio yeah yeah maybe it's a topic for another time but but i think band directors get away with murder on the whole in terms of <laughs> in terms of actual music education it's it's a horrible yeah. place to be yeah, I mean, I, I will say too, I've been so fortunate. I've had some incredible music teachers, like in high school and stuff, who happened to also be my band director, right? Mm. I was fortunate. But the American band tradition obsession is kind of ridiculous. And <laughs> even in college, I I thought we, just ha- we should have just more orchestras or more chamber groups or more jazz groups instead of symphonic bands. Because that's really, Sridhar, that's what sets you up for success in your career as a performer, <laughs> you know, knowing the band repertoire. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Well, if you want to just stay, I mean, it's this thing where it's it's like a self-feeding loop, right? Where it is, yeah. No one's interested in it except for band people, right? And and this goes to show, like, the composers of the of these music, that, this music that we're recording, they're largely band directors. Um, mm-hmm. They're they're doing it for band kids to learn how to play in a band. Then they'll go on to college and play in a band there. Then they'll yeah. get some degree or another that helps them become a band director or like a sectional coach for bands. It's like a self-contained loop and no one cares. No. And also, I just remember my first time is playing in a full orchestra with a full string section. Yeah, I remember vividly. It was at a summer music camp slash festival. This was, yeah, middle high school or so. It kind of like turned me on to like classical music and such. <laughs> and I remember it was it was cool. It was uh, we played the first piece was Sibelius's Finlandia. Awesome. Right. Classic. Second piece was the Moldau by Smetna from Mavlast, right? Mm-hmm. And then the third piece was Wagner's Overture to Die Meistersinger. Wow, that's a that's a t- top program for what age was this? We were all like sixteen or so, okay, all like yeah. middle high school and high school sort uh, age. That's legit. Yeah, 
Yeah, and um, kind of like a program, which I kind of loved. It was just kind of three pretty much unrelated pieces, but <laughs> the conductor liked them. I wouldn't say they're totally unrelated. I mean, one of them is about the um, about Finnish supremacy. One of them is about Czech supremacy. And the third one, let's just leave that one out. <laughs> <laughs> it's about Central European supremacy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll be as vague as possible on that. Yeah, um, yeah. But no, I mean... Yeah, it was one of those moments where I was like, oh, crap, this music is awesome, right? Also, yeah, I realized very quickly, oh, shit, like, I know how to play in a, in a band. I know, I know how to play in a jazz band, too. I do not know how to play in an orchestra yet, <laughs> right? Like, oh, crap, my trumpet part is in E for the Meistersinger or whatever it was, and I might, I'm holding a B-flat trumpet, so I have to transpose. I need to be able to count 111 measures of rest <laughs> on my own, right? Yeah. And, oh, I have to be able to blend with strings. I have to be able to follow an orchestral conductor who, you know, if you're conducting strings, you're going to naturally conduct in a very different way than if you're conducting the saxophone section or something, right? Yeah. And so learning that skill of how to, you know, play behind the beat a bit more. As Bernstein always said, the role of an orchestral conductor is always trying to reel the orchestra in, mm-hmm. which I thought was a good way to put it whereas wind ensemble wind symphony i think coming from like the jazz tradition it's very you know on the snap you know very in time and strict yeah where an orchestra you know i discovered very quickly operates a lot more like a chamber group in the way you feed off each other and i found myself watching the concert master more than i'd watch the conductor <laughs> well there's that story about about herbert von Karajan, the old conductor of the berlin philharmonic through, I mean, he was—he's the iconic conductor of the Berlin Philharmonic. Yeah, yeah. if, if anyone listening doesn't know, but yeah, he—he he famously conducted in this style that where if you watch him conduct, there's no beat, right? It's yeah, it's all it's all waves that he that he does with his arms. And um, there's a story that's prob is probably apocryphal. A, a musician in the in the orchestra said, um, you know, Maestro, this is is beautiful what you're doing, but but when do we play? And Karyon said something like, "You play when you can't bear it anymore." Right, which is entirely, entirely unhelpful. And, and the concertmaster yeah. sort of just just looks at the group and says, just, just follow me. Like, we're doing this. Yeah. The, the whole thing is like a, it's really coming from the concertmaster. But the, the conductor is there in, in professional groups as a sort of, but it's like a charisma thing, right? You know? Yeah, right. Where most of the work a conductor does is during rehearsal. How do we get on this? Um, I don't even know. <laughs> this isn't any of our bullet points we had we had in store for today. Yeah. I wasn't uh, planning on trashing band education today, but here we are. That's what's been up with me. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's yeah. We got on this. They were fun, though, so I don't mean to sound entirely grumpy about them. Um, yeah, yeah. Did you play with uh, headphones, like a click track, and you had to follow? Yep. Yeah, I hate that. Yeah, I yeah, it's tough. Click or it's not yeah. tough, it's just, like, annoying. <laughs> yeah, have you done a lot of that? Are you? Yeah, I did something very similar recently, right? I was doing a home studio recording because I am a trumpet player in this new virtual reality short film. I don't know the whole context of of the film and such but what i do know is that well i know from the music it was all like 1920s vintage jazz and stuff so it was fun to play and we did it, it was the whole orchestra play kind of at home uh, like, almost like the height of covid how, how they were doing at home <laughs> studio recordings for films and things that's kind of how it was so i was playing um i had my mic set up i had my sheet music and i was sent all the click tracks to play around with and do my own recordings and then put it up to dropbox yeah, but it was it was kind of cool because it was, yeah, very 1920s, like think Chicago, the musical style of trumpet playing. So it was fun, very, very New Orleans, Chicago <laughs> style playing. So it was cool. But I just found out the short film, this, yeah, VR short film is going to be shown at Tribeca Film Festival in New York. Dude, uh, that's awesome. Yeah. 
I don't think I get to go, but my name is in the credits. So that's awesome. That's really that's really awesome. <laughs> and my trumpet playing, most importantly, my trumpet playing is in the film. So, so yeah, it's kind of cool. That's uh, that's 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 exciting. Was this is this the the one for for Meta for Facebook? Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it makes I, sense that they're doing a, a sort of VR-themed short film. Yeah, no, and I always thought, like, the studio skill, the skill that studio musicians have is really something interesting, hmm. mostly in L.A., but there's a reasonably big um, studio scene in New York as well, but, like, Jim Walker on flute, for example, right? Wayne Bergeron on trumpet. Uh, Malcolm McNabb's another trumpet player uh, that's huge in the studio scene. One of those where, even if you haven't heard, dear listeners, even if you don't recognize these names, you've heard them play. If you've seen Pirates of the Caribbean or any Disney movie of the past 20 years or any Universal film, you've heard they're, they're playing. They're the ones playing in these soundtracks and such. And, and yeah, We'll, we'll put this in the show notes, but there, there's a wonderful page of, on Jim Walker's website of all the films that he's played in. And it basically reads like a long list of all the important movies of the last 30 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's like over a thousand films. Yeah, yeah. The, the list is well over a thousand. From Jurassic yeah. Park to Transformers. I mean, just name anything, basically. Ratatouille. Yeah, right, right. I always thought, yeah, that's such an interesting gig. And again, you show up to the studio having never seen the music before and you're just sight reading it and they record it and it's in the film. <laughs> yeah. Just some quick follow-up. Our last episode was great, but yeah, we talked all about Russia and Russian musicians and Russian music and things and all that. But we talked about um, Molafiev. Is that how you pronounce the last name? Malafiev or Malafiev is one of those. Malafiev. Yeah, I'll go yeah. with you on that. Yeah, anyway. But his concerts were canceled in Montreal where he was supposed to play with the symphony and Michael Tilson Thomas. And yeah, what follow-up do we have on that? Other than he viewed my Instagram story when I posted <laughs> our episode, so and tagged him. That's Chris's year made. Um, yeah. <laughs> what follow up on that? So I, I do believe that his, his concerts have been reinstated, but just later on. So that's okay. a partial partial victory, I guess. I, I, it would have been nice to. I, I to consider do it. that a victory, though. I mean, yeah. It it, it would have been nice to do it when when the moment was hot, but you know. Mm-hmm. That's fine. And then the other thing is that um, he posted on his Instagram story a while ago now. Uh, it was a, maybe a couple of days after we, we released that episode that he's, he's been the target of some, of some uh, denial of service attacks from, from probably from Russians, let's, let's, let's face it. His website was hacked. He posted a big thing saying, and he's like, yeah, I wonder who this could be. <laughs> I think the Kremlin listens to our podcast. I think that's what's going on. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if that's a good thing, actually. I, I shouldn't be. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I have noticed some fishy things on my computer, huh? Weird. I haven't thought twice about it until now. So you're telling me that that guy who sent me an email asking me to wire him, uh, you know, $2,000. Sergey Johnson. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, might want to think twice on that. Uh, but yeah, no, so anyway, no, his spirits seem high. He's he's doing his thing, and he's a badass, and yeah. keep on doing you, Alex. <laughs>
So yes, as you know, I got a new digital piano uh, beginning of this year or so, and I, I love it. For those who are nerds and want to know exactly what it is, it's a Kawai CA79 digital hybrid piano, and I love it. It's great. It's really cool, but I also, when I was shopping for pianos, I got really turned on to the whole piano shopping world and <laughs> things. And so even now, when I have like a really free weekend and a free day, I'll just go to one of the piano stores in San Francisco and just try a bunch of pianos. And it's so much fun, Treater. It is so much fun. You got a wandering eye for pianos, or at least a yeah. wandering, uh, you know, got wandering fingers. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'll tell you this. I someday when I like semi-retire or something I kind of want to be a piano salesman I think I could be really good at it actually because <laughs> it's a tricky thing to sell and it was a, it's an interesting industry right I mean pianos themselves I find so interesting they're works of engineering but also works of art in a way and I just I just love going oh and piano store and showroom owners are always so cool and interesting and they totally know I'm not in the market to buy one of these two hundred thousand dollar pianos <laughs> But they're like, oh, yeah, absolutely. You can come in and just play around for a few hours. And, yeah, they just love having people come and play their pianos and things. So I think I have a good grasp on the whole piano market and industry. I think I could sell them pretty well. And, like, the whole game of having to match what someone wants and match them to the right piano is more of an art than a science. You know, I do have a dream piano. I do have a dream piano (laughs) in mind. And it would be, oh, I forget the exact name of it, but it would be the Carl Beckstein Concert Grand. They're not cheap. Like the cheapest Becksteins, I think they don't make like entry level baby grands. They only make like salon grands mm. and, of course, concert grands. The cheapest ones are like $90,000. So it's. <laughs> well, what you'll have to do is you'll have to start a business selling pianos and then save up $90,000 to, to get a Beckstein. Yeah. That's how that works. Exactly. Right? You, you, you know, you got to sell pianos to get your dream piano. Right. <laughs> or honestly, I, I could just have. I could start my piano showroom and just have that Beckstein in the corner. Be like, oh yeah, it's already been sold. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah sorry. And like, I, yeah, I just play on it all, all the time. People are walking uh, into your store and they're, they're looking for a salesman, but it's just you playing in a corner there. You're like, no, no, no. <laughs> this whole this whole thing is just a front. Yeah, yeah. Well, I look forward to walking into uh, Chris's piano store or whatever Chris's piano emporium. Ooh, have you picked out yeah. a name for your, I have for not. your retirement I have not. plan? <laughs> Chris's. Okay, I'll. I mean, stirred, not shaken, because <laughs> it'll be a bar and a piano showroom. Now we're talking. Hell yeah! This is turning into a problematic idea, though, because now it's just going to be you drinking martinis, playing on a back, <laughs> on a, on a back sign in the corner. I don't think you're going to actually do any business. It's quarter to three. There's no one in the place except you and me. So set em up, Joe. I got a little story I think you should know. So, Streeter, in one of the orchestras I play in, we started playing this piece for our upcoming concert, or started rehearsing this piece for our upcoming concert that I had not heard of ever. You know, and me and you, we know a lot about classical music i think but still you know there's it's a big vast realm right <laughs> and yeah no it's, it was this piece i saw programmed i hadn't heard of the composer i hadn't heard of the piece but it is howard hansen symphony number no. two yeah we were running through this piece and i was just totally surprised and shocked 
just how beautiful this piece was and how, how much I, I just loved it. And I didn't know too much, or I had heard the name Howard Hansen before, and I realized why I'd heard it. He's He was apparently the guy that made the Eastman School of Music kind of what it is, hmm. you know, like a world-class music school. I forget if he was dean there or the founder there or something, but he was he was in, he was in charge of something there for like half a century or so and really catapulted that school to being truly world-class. But I didn't know he composed. And <laughs> this symphony in three movements, I believe, yeah, is just a wonderful work that I, I loved and I just found myself listening to as I take an evening walk and such. I don't know. It, it's not very often... I discover a piece that I had never heard before, and I love it. I, I love it as much as I love this, and it's always a welcome, a welcome surprise when it happens. But I sent it to you, and I'm curious what you think. You might hate it. Oh no! So. <laughs> no, yeah, I also had not heard of Howard Hansen or the symphony, and it could just be that we're totally ignorant. It's interesting that it seems like you know, just even 30, maybe 40 years ago, this piece was really well known. Uh, and yeah. now it's sort of it's sort of fading, maybe because it's in a it's in a sort of old school style. But yeah, yeah. I, I liked it a lot. Um, when you said it to me, you said that it kind of reminded you of some corn gold or something like that. And yeah, I think that that's very accurate. It it, it seemed like old style composing, right? It, it was very mm-hmm. melodious, you know, broadly tonal, and and just sort of like it's full of lush melodies and orchestrations. It's just a really nice piece. It sounds like one of Korngold's, Eric Wolfgang Korngold. <laughs> it sounds like one of his film scores from the 30s. And sure enough, this piece was composed in 1930. So, oh, okay, okay. Yeah, it just harkens to like that early Hollywood sound, even though this is a symphony, this wasn't for film. Yeah, like if you told me this is from one of Korngold's film scores, I would have totally believe you. It just checks out. Yeah, yeah. read on on Hansen's Wikipedia that he called himself like a Midwestern composer or something. Oh. The, the music springs forth from from his like Midwestern soul or something like that. I'm probably butchering the, the actual quote. But it kind of got me thinking that like the, the 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 sound of the coasts versus the sound of the Midwest and how that relates <laughs> to because another thing that I was hearing when I was listening besides the sort of early Hollywood sound was it, it was really reminding me of something by Smetna or, or, or Dvorak yeah. or, or even sort of Mahler at his most pastoral. There's a sort of bohemian or even sort of the, a quality of the Bavarian yeah. countryside. There's a really sort of pastoral quality to it. And I was just hmm. thinking about the sound of the American coast versus the sound of the, the American mid- Midwest and how it relates to sort of the sound of Paris or, or, or Berlin or Bohemia. There's actually more similarities between sort of old Bohemia and, and, and the Midwest than there is between the Midwest and, say, New York City, right? It's something where, where cities have in common more between themselves than they do with, with the actual country of the city, right? If that yeah, sense, right. So. Yeah, it's funny because, yeah, there is like a... There's a pastoral or a countryside identity that kind of runs common throughout the planet, right? The Italian countryside and also the Japanese countryside and the Canadian countryside. They are all kind of linked in this weird sort of way and in, in not just in our psyche and perception, but like in the actual 
art, the mindset, the lifestyle, right? Even though they're not linked by politics at all. Right? Yeah. They're, they're not literally linked in any sort of way, but there is a common thread there, just as there's a common thread in cities. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we can just make it easy and just think of like Western cities. Yeah, if you know your way around Paris, you can kind of find your way around Boston, yeah. right? It's like there's a way Western cities are. There's always a city center. There's a financial corridor. There's you know, the main church. There's the tourist area. There's the airport that's kind of always similar in the way it's structured and how far out from the city it is and how you get there. There's the highways that circle the city. There's, there's like a way we do cities <laughs> as humans. Yeah. And the same way, there's like, a reason for the countryside existing and that reason is kind of consistent cross-culturally that's an interesting connection i could also if you look at american composers right you could look at i mean gershwin is as much a city composer as you could probably be right right, right yeah he called the boroughs the countryside like the bronx <laughs> was as far out of new york he went <laughs> maybe say Copeland was kind of more a pastoral composer yeah or had, had, had his moments of pastoral composing sure sure yeah I, I think we've talked about it before but the opening to his uh, duo for flute and piano that's one of the most yeah. wide open things that, I, that I've heard it's staring out into the plains Same with Fanfare for the Common Man, right? That's just the grand prairie of open America. <laughs> right, right. Obviously, Beethoven had his moments. He wrote a whole symphony, mm-hmm. which is actually my, my favorite Beethoven symphony. Um, Pastoral symphony is really great. Yeah. Six, yeah. Schubert is, to me, the, the mm. ultimate, maybe natural composer. In Schubert, there's always brooks that are bubbling and, you know, trees and birds. It, it, in his music, it's, it's the most natural countryside music that I can think of.
took music out of the saloons and out of the living rooms into nature. This is a very significant step. This constant flow of the water. Nobody has ever thought of that before, how to express this in musical terms. But yeah, to, to bring it back to the, to the symphony, let, let me see if I can find... I want to actually dig up the quote, but... Oh, here it is. Actually, no, I, I found it accidentally. I was going to say it's not worth it because I couldn't find it. It says here, Perhaps Hansen described his music best when he portrayed it as metaphorically, quote, springing from the soil of the American Midwest. It is music of the plains rather than of the city and reflects, I believe, something of the broad prairies of my native Nebraska. That's kind of what got me thinking about all this. landmark recording of this work that won the classical music grammy and which is, was very highly acclaimed it's the recording of, of the conductor gerard schwartz conducting the seattle symphony and yeah this recording's on apple music spotify all that and there's a video of it on youtube it took me a while to find it because whoever <laughs> uploaded it was not wise they like you have to search like seattle hansen or something <laughs> and then you'll find it has like 52 views it's just that's so, i didn't even notice crazy that. oh yeah it has yeah. 51 views and Three of them were I commented on it. You commented on it? You'll see one comment. Nice. Christopher Arkin, two hours ago. Underrated piece. Phenomenal performance. Awesome. Dude, I think we're, we're propping this video up. I've seen this maybe three or four times in the past couple of days since you sent it to me. I assume you've done the same. You're the only yeah, like. Yeah. Only, this video basically only exists because of us. <laughs> well, when this episode goes live, I'm going to link it in the next comment. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah. So the conductor is Gerard Schwartz. And my go-to answer when someone asks me, who do I really respect and admire in the classical music world, in this country at least? My go-to answer is always Gerard Schwartz. Hmm. I think he is such an impressive human. Not only am I a little biased, because he was the principal trumpet of the New York Philharmonic for several years in the 70s. He was a phenomenal trumpet player. Like He released some landmark recordings of the standard trumpet concertos and things. But I love how he was, um, he was a trumpet player. Then he got into conducting on the side. And he started the Mostly Mozart Festival, which I think is in New York. And so that's all done by him. Then he moved to Seattle. He got the job as the music director and conductor of the Seattle Symphony. And he pretty much single-handedly turned that orchestra from like a regional orchestra to like a very highly respected musical organization and orchestra. I always thought the Seattle Symphony is the most underrated orchestra in America. Mm. Like those who, who who are like in the world of classical music all know like they, they put out great record. They're a very solid group. They're top of like maybe the second tier orchestras, but I would even call them a, a top tier orchestra actually. They're, they're only a second tier orchestra in their sort of name brand yeah, recognition. Exactly. Their playing is phenomenal. I mean, they're, they're one of the best orchestras in the country. And also one of the most interesting. Like they're doing, I was going to say that too. Like yeah, the symphony yeah. is an example, right? Yeah. 
Gerard Schwartz built that orchestra to a top-tier Grammy-winning group. And their concert hall he had built up there for them is gorgeous. It's maybe like 15, 20 years old now or so. It's a beautiful, beautiful concert hall. It's fantastic. And from a concrete standpoint, he's actually made a difference in like the artistic fabric of this country. Hmm. And he was just a trumpet player, right? So that that got into all of this. And if you talk to anybody that's played underneath him, everyone admires him so much. And I'm not sure if that's partly because I talked to a lot of trumpet players and <laughs> he knows how to conduct from a trumpet player's perspective. He's like given concerts, like I forget what it's called, but some classical music festival that was in Napa for a handful of years. And trumpet players would like race to like be called to like play in that groove because <laughs> everyone just loved playing under him. So he's like someone I've always just admired and thought, you know, more people should try to strive to be that. If you look at what it takes to do what he did, it's so much more than being a great musician or a great conductor, right? You have to like mm-hmm. be invested and spend a lot of time and effort into into actually sort of building the scene up. The whole community and the scene around you in the city, and, and it's a lot of commitment to, to like extra musical things, really. When you see conductors who, who really who really build up an orchestra, that's mm-hmm. what's going on, right? A part of it, yeah. obviously, is the musicianship that they bring to it. But a big part of it is the sort of all the stuff that you don't see, the the sort of outreach programs and, and things like, I, I don't actually even know what all would go into it, but it's just, it's it's community building, right? It's That sounds cliche yeah. now because it, that sort of phrase has been hijacked <laughs> by like corporations. But yeah, whenever you see stories like George Schwartz and the Seattle Symphony, or I think vaguely kind of like Simon Rattle with the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra. Yeah. It's a great parallel. The city of Birmingham, not in Alabama, the one in England. Um, their Mahler cycle is fantastic. Yeah. It's one of my favorite Mahler cycle recordings with Sir Simon Rattle. But yeah, the, it, do, it doesn't happen that much because it's hard, right? Because like George Schwartz, you know, he had to go give speeches at the Rotary Club luncheon. You know, yeah. he, he, had, he had to do all that, right? It's like everything outside of the specific music obligations. He had to, he had to build the music scene, right? He had to convince players to like take the, the principal flute gig there, right? And stuff he... He, he had to convince the city to help, you know, use tax dollars to finance the concert hall they built, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I respect so that a lot because the number of musicians who can actually go give a convincing speech at like a donor meeting is, mm-hmm. you know, that's like six people. <laughs> yeah. Most of us are like crazy people. So respect right. is what I'm trying to say. So, I mean, what do you think about the art of conducting itself, Streeter? That's like that's a big one. That's a big question. Yeah, but like, who are some of the conductors you've played with who you really admired, and why did you admire them? Well, let's see. One person. Um, he was a big guy in uh, Indiana University. His name is Cliff Colnott. Um, oh sure, yeah, I played it yeah. a few times. Yeah. I, I remember um, you walked very slowly. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah. In like the hallways, if he saw you, he would like extend his hand out to shake your hand but you're still like 30 feet apart and, yeah. and you'd have to like rush up to go like sh- shake his hand or else it was awkward yeah but no i i played with him in the in the summer of after my freshman year i, I played a, a cycle with him of tchaikovsky five and some other things oh uh, i think romeo and juliet the, the prokofiev like uh, selections from that yeah but, the suite or something yeah, yeah but um, i i remember playing principal flute under him and and that was that was a real eye-opening experience he was such a good teacher he was such a good conductor um like you said you know most of the work of, of conducting goes in in rehearsal and he was right. by far the, the best rehearsing conductor that I've, I've ever worked with he was so detailed he was i mean first of all he handed all the principal players uh, a score of Tchaikovsky five that's that's really heavily annotated with with lots of things and he, he you know he had us all study it even before coming to the rehearsals and then in the rehearsal he was so detailed he, he would not have any problem sort of working out 
intonation from the ground up. He would have people, you would like build the chord, you know, have to have people play the, the root and then the fifth on top and then, you know, put in the third. He, he would actually, he would actually um, work on things in a way that's pretty rare in orchestra rehearsals, mm-hmm. right? Um, but he really took the time to teach you how to play in an orchestra and how to tune, really. I mean, that, that was the most important thing. And, yeah. and how to how to blend and how to who to listen for and how those how the principal players work together and and how the orchestra sort of built from a sort of there's like a not a hierarchy but there's like a you know person X listens to person Y person Y listens to person Z and it's it's right. a sort of web of, of ears and yeah I don't know I, I just I really admired the fact that he he could teach you all of that and just by the way that he rehearsed that's almost a skill separate from conducting that's he was mm-hmm. both a great conductor and a great uh, educator so. He also conducted the Civic Symphony of Chicago, right? Yeah, yeah. One of the premier like Academy orchestras of America, if you want, to, if you want to call it that. Yeah, it all made sense. Like everyone loved playing un- underneath him. He was just really even when like because I sub in a few sets where he was conducting, and I remember he would do things where he would say, "All right, well, let's rehearse it this way today." Not because we're going to play it this way in the concert. We're not going to play it this way in the concert. But in your career, you will work with conductors who like to do it this way. Yeah. You know, yeah. this is educational, you know. Right. I thought that was like so interesting and so valuable. Yeah, yeah. So the art of conducting. Okay, so with playing an instrument, it's a very down-to-earth craft. And there's something I really like about that. There's something, it's like, a, it's very, it keeps you honest, right? If you go on stage and you're playing you're playing a Bach partita and you suck, yeah. you just suck. There's no two yeah. ways about it. There's, no one can save you. Um, everyone can hear it, <laughs> and yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there are no, I mean, there, there obviously there's, there's people who are better and worse, but the, uh, by and large, everyone who's got a successful career playing instruments more or less know how to play. There's no, you can't, yeah. you can't fake your way around that. And conducting, it's, it's an interesting one because the great conductors are some of the greatest musicians ever right but there there are a lot of like conductors who i look at and i think like he's kind of a he's kind of a faker conductor right he's <laughs> he's he's making it on the strength of his musicians rather than himself and, and usually you find this out in rehearsal not not on the uh, on the side of the audience right the right. audience can't tell one way or another which is why they've been able to get that far but but all the musicians yeah. know it. all the musicians know it and, and they they can tell right so the art of conducting is an interesting one it's, it's like a high High variance one, I guess, is a way to put it. Um, it's higher mm-hmm. variance than instrumental playing. You know, you never know what you're going to get with a conductor. Often you'll get someone that clearly doesn't know what he's doing, and it's it's amazing that he's made it this far. But you can do that, right? I don't, I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, for instrumental playing, there's something very trade school-y about it. Yeah. Does yeah. that make sense, right? It's like a craft. Right, right. You have to be like a craftsman to some degree, and a lot of it's very almost like pass fail. Either you can play the piece or you can't. Of course, there's an artistic element to it, right? An interpretation, and yeah, you know, it's an art. It's yeah. an art. But like 99% of it is like playing in tune and playing in time. That's it. Yeah. If you can yeah, play in right. tune and play in time, you don't. You don't. You can have not a single artistic bone in your body, and you'll have a very successful career, and and rightfully so, because the number of people yeah. who can do that is small. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. But. Conducting is almost the opposite, right? Conducting technique, I mean, let's face it, I think Ricardo Muti, the uh, Italian conductor, was saying in one interview when he, I think he played piano, and then when he started getting to conducting when he was in conservatory in Italy, he said, his teacher's like, all right, so when it's in two, you conduct like this, three is like this, and four is like that. All right, so that's all you need to know about conducting. Now let's talk about music. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the art of conducting is art of interpretation. It's the art of analysis. 
And I always thought too, like we've all met conductors where it's like, oh, I wish you actually spent more time playing an instrument. <laughs> yeah. And we meet instrumentalists who I always thought, man, if they could just like, I would love to task them with like conducting this piece because then they'd actually have to think about it, right? <laughs> and frankly, I think most of the great conductors were great instrumentalists, not all of them, but I think most of them were. And I think, yeah, they're great and they tap into a different kind of gear. Even someone like Abato, who's not, I don't know that any recordings exist of him playing piano or organ, but I think there was a story about him playing through the the entire St. Matthew Passion of Bach hmm. on, on an organ when he was like 10 years old or something. So okay. you know, he's, yeah. he, could, yeah. he could play. Um, yeah. And because we need so many conductors around the world, in the world of music, like mm-hmm. every, every large group needs a conductor. So there's so many conductors who just don't know what they're doing and they kind of give a bad name for, for the rest of them. But, <laughs> but the ones who really do know what they're doing, they all are great. Obviously, they know what they're doing. They know what all the musicians have to be doing. Like as Bernstein said, you just don't get up on that, on that box called the podium unless you know, you know everything about the score, right? You have, it's not just sort of what the second clarinets are doing, like he said. Yeah. You have to know like, what does a composer mean by this? You have to be able to sort of conduct it as if you wrote it and have a sort of, that sort of familiarity with it. And the great instrumentalists have to have to be like that as well. But it's just really easy to, to fake it with a, with conducting. So there's something too when a performance goes great, everyone compliments the conductor, and when it goes poorly, everyone blames the musicians. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's kind of a thing. Yeah, <laughs> when really it's often the other way around. <laughs> like it's yeah, in reality. To that point, I think a, another quality that great conductors share is a respect for musicians. It's always the mediocre ones who who think of themselves as self as self important. Um, the, the great conductors know that the music is coming from the musicians. There's a story, and I think it was um, Zubin Mehta, who was giving his premiere maybe with the Israel Philharmonic, and he was set to conduct one Schubert symphony, I think maybe Schubert five. And because it was his premiere, he was so nervous and just out of his world that he, he gave the downbeat for a different Schubert symphony. I think he said it was Schubert two or something. So he just started, his mind was just in a different place and he just started conducting a different piece. And the musicians obviously played what was on the program, which is the right piece. So, yeah. so they bailed him out. And, and, you know, he tells the story saying like, you know, I realized then that it's, it's actually, it's, it's the musicians who are doing everything and the musicians saved my premiere. So, <laughs> um, so you know, you, you get this, great. you, you yeah. get the sense of, of like, oh yeah, yeah, like he, he actually, he actually respects where the sound is coming from. And it's the conductors who don't do that, that, that are really hard to play under, right? Oh, I, I know that oh too well. <laughs> and and yeah. maybe that, that's another reason why, why um, conductors who come from within the orchestra are really interesting. Playing the piano is a skill, even if you come from an orchestral instrument, but right. a conductor who comes from, say, you know, trumpet and knows what it's like to sit in that seat. That brings a different flavor to the yeah. craft. I think instrumental is always really appreciated. Or I don't, I don't think, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. You know what video I love? It's that video on YouTube of Leonard Bernstein getting in an argument with the trumpet player in the London <laughs> Symphony Orchestra. 
<laughs> like in rehearsal, like it's arguing, going back and forth, about like how the part goes or something. Yeah. <laughs> He's yeah. not thrilled to be having this like conversation and like sucking up time rehearsal doing this. But that whole mini documentary of him conducting the Elgar Edigma variations, right? I think that's what it is. Yeah. There's a whole like small like maybe 10 15 minute documentary of him doing the conducting for that with the with the bbc symphony it's really great i mean they, he gets into i think he gets into it with a triangle player one time <laughs> he gets into yeah. it with that trumpet player and then there's there's a time where um he asks for more tuba in one of the variations you know the tuba does do that he he really nails it for like five seconds right but then he gets tired because it's a very tiring part to do at that tempo and then like lenny like stops and he's like you talk big but you don't last <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, which, you know, oh man, that tuba player must have carried that to his grave because that, that's a sick burn, man. <laughs> <laughs> that is rough. Lenny, Lenny, that is, that's, that's to the bone. It's heaven. Now do it with the, with the tuba. Three, four. You can do more. You can do more. You can give it all you got. They're, they're giving all they got. Come on. Here you go. Three, and... You talk big, but you don't last. <laughs> you know what I mean? All right. 